Blog Talk Radio.
Today is Sunday, uh, November the 19th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this spe- special edition uh, of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the continuing mass demonstrations throughout the world in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Resistance groups in neighboring Lebanon say that the United States are responsible, along with Israel, uh, for uh, the war in Gaza. The government in Iran has warned Washington that it will respond to any attack uh, from the Pentagon. And the U.S. bases in Iraq are still being targeted uh, by militias in solidarity with Palestine. In the second and third hours, we will listen to a panel discussion on recent events uh, in Palestine and throughout the region, taken uh, from Electronic Intifada. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the live music of Mkautum and her orchestra. Egyptian classical music. Let's listen in.
Welcome back. And uh, that was the music uh, of Um Kaltun and her orchestra uh, from the North African state of Egypt. Egyptian uh, classical music uh, here at the Pan-African Journal. Special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Sunday afternoon, uh, November 19th, 2023. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Our lead story uh, deals with the continuing mass demonstrations in solidarity uh, with the Palestinian struggle. According to France's labor union, estimates of 60,000 people gathered in Paris with an additional 40,000 assembling in dozens of other towns across the country. Large crowds convened in protest across France, the UK, and various European cities on Saturday demanding a ceasefire in Gaza and an end to Israeli hostilities. Despite torrential rain, several thousand protesters marched through the central Paris today, holding banners that read, halt the massacre in Gaza and West Bank, immediate ceasefire. France must immediately call for a ceasefire so that the guns go silent. That was according to the CGT Union Secretary General Sophie Benet, one of the several union leaders addressing the rally. According to the CGT estimates, 60,000 people gathered in Paris with an additional 40,000 assembling in dozens of other towns across the country. In Marseille, the Asian France press uh, witnessed several hundred people observing a minute silence in memory of the Palestinian martyrs of the war. In Toulouse, police reported the participation of more than 1,200 individuals in a march. The health ministry in Gaza reports approximately 12,300 martyrs in Israeli's relentless aggression, with over 5,000 of them being children. In Geneva, Switzerland, Organizers reported approximately 4,000 people marching, lighting candles, arranged as a map of Gaza in front of the United Nations European headquarters. A large banner read, Stop Genocide in Gaza, and many participants shouted, Free, Free Palestine in English. In Amsterdam, two rallies were held, one advocating for a ceasefire in Gaza and another pro-Israeli rally. Police noted that the protests were calm and no arrests were made. In other news uh, taking place uh, in the West Asia region and internationally, the Lebanese resistance says that Washington and its Western allies bear responsibility for the suffering and pain of the Palestinian people in the ongoing aggression. Hezbollah said yesterday that the massacres committed by the Israeli occupation against unarmed civilians in Al-Fakura school, Tal Azatar and Abu Hussein were fully supported and colluded with by the United States of America. In a statement, the resistance group emphasized that Washington and its Western allies bear responsibility for the suffering and pain of the Palestinian people, highlighting that the occupation deliberately targets displaced refugees, sheltering in schools and locations overseen by international organizations. The statement also referred to the Islamic resistance presence and combat against the Israeli occupation in the southern Lebanese front as an expression of solidarity, both in words and actions. According to the statement, the Palestinian people, through their resistance, exemplify patience, resilience, and confrontation against the occupation. Hezbollah reaffirmed its absolute support for the oppressed 
and resisting Palestinian people using all means to stop the aggression. The statement concluded that Palestinian people will emerge victorious with their steadfastness and valiant resistance. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahin told the Financial Times that Iran would respond fiercely to any attack, any act of aggression committed against its forces in Syria. Iran would fiercely respond to any U.S. acts of aggression against its forces in Syria. Iranian Foreign Minister Hussein Amir Abdullahin told the Financial Times during an interview that aired yesterday. Amir Abdullahin revealed that according to his information, no Iranian forces suffered any casualties thus far. However, he emphasized that, quote, if that happens, the response will be severe, unquote. When asked about the factions within the axis of resistance, the Iranian minister clarified that these factions, such as Hezbollah, Ansurullah, and the Islamic resistance in Iraq are resistance movements in the region against Israeli occupation. He highlighted that they have an independent identity and stated that they do not receive orders from Iran but have good relations with it. He added, Israel represents the United States by proxy, but we do not have any group representing us by proxy in the region. Hezbollah has entered into the stage of war with the Israeli occupation, the Iranian top diplomat said, confirming that the messages sent by the U.S. to Hezbollah have a counterproductive effect, as not only will they not deter it, but will make it more resolute in its decisions. Regarding the deployment of U.S. aircraft carriers in the region, Amir Abdullahin explained uh, that the, according to a military expert, the arrival of U.S. ships in the Mediterranean was not in Washington's interest because it increased the possibility of attacks on its fleets. Over the past 40 days, messages have been exchanged between Iran and the U.S. via the U.S. interest section at the Swiss Embassy in Tehran, indicating that Tehran wants the war to escalate. Any possibility should be considered due to the approach followed by the United States and Israel in the region and the ongoing crimes against the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Amir Abdullahian said, quote, if the crimes against the people of Gaza and the West Bank are not stopped, any possibility could be considered and a wider conflict could prove insatiable. And finally, uh, in Iraq, the Islamic resistance in Iraq claims responsibility for several attacks on U.S. occupation bases in Syria and Iraq. The Islamic resistance in Iraq announced yesterday that it's targeted the Al-Tanaf base, which is affiliated with the U.S. occupation forces in Syria, and they utilized drone strikes. Several sources told Al-Mahadeen they heard several explosions inside the Conoco gas field, a U.S. occupation base north of Deir Ezzor, which resulted from the Islamic resistance in Iraq targeting the base with a barrage of missiles. Simultaneously, an Al-Mahadeen correspondent reported hearing explosions at the U.S. base in Al-Omar oil field, northeast of Deir Ezzor. In addition, the resistance claimed responsibility for a drone attack that targeted the Harir base of the U.S. occupation in northern Iraq. Iraqi Hezbollah Brigade security official Abu Ali al-Askari stated that the strikes by the Islamic resistance in Iraq are in line with the strategy of exhausting the enemy. 
and its resources, confirming that the continuation of genocide against the Palestinian people places the world before a historic, historical responsibility. And you can read these articles in their entirety by logging on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire. That's going to conclude uh, our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We'd just like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussion on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, November 19th, 2023, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with another segment of our program.
All right, that was uh, the Staples Singers with a track entitled Freedom Highway uh, from 1965. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Sunday, November the 19th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, uh, we'd like to listen uh, to a panel discussion from Electronic Intifada, one of the uh, profound uh, primary sources on the situation in Palestine and in West Asia. Uh, Let's listen uh, to uh, Day 38, uh, which was uh, recorded several days ago. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream for Monday, November 13th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor at the Electronic Intifada, with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer, and our Executive Director, Ali Abunima. We have a very full show today, including a live report from Gaza with journalist Hin Khodari and Sawar Elajla, a former doctor at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza, who will be helping us make sense of the absolute catastrophe Israel has inflicted onto Gaza's medical system. But before we go to Gaza with Hind, Ali Abunima, we turn to you for your opening remarks. Thanks, Nora. On Sunday, the Biden administration carried out bombing attacks against what the New York Times describes as facilities used by Iran and its proxies in eastern Syria. The newspaper also called this an apparent escalation by the Biden administration to the near daily attacks on U.S. soldiers in Syria and Iraq since October 17th. What the Times does not say is that the American presence in eastern Syria is an illegal occupation. The United States simply has no business there. Let's also recall that in 2020, the Iraqi parliament voted overwhelmingly for the removal of all U.S. troops from that country. But at the time, President Trump warned that if Iraq tried to expel American forces, the U.S. would place sanctions on the country even tighter than those against Iran. The American aggression over the weekend, along with the U.S. military buildup across the region, underscores once again that Israel's genocide in Gaza is a joint project of Washington and Tel Aviv, a true expression of what leaders in both countries like to call their shared values. The American attacks also highlight that without Washington's support, the Zionist project in the region would already have collapsed long ago. So until the United States leaves the region, people will have little hope of peace and healing from the relentless and repeated bloodbaths visited on them decade after decade, but especially since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. It seems natural to the U.S. government and its loyal press that the United States is allowed to bomb, intervene wherever it likes, especially, as is currently the case, 
so that its attack dog, Israel, can carry out a genocide in peace and quiet, so to speak. Meanwhile, Washington considers it illegitimate for Iran and any other regional powers or groups to act in solidarity with and defense of the Palestinian people and of Lebanon, which both face existential threats from Israel. The threat from Israel is not theoretical, but of course very real. Israel is a threat to everyone in the region, including, and perhaps even uh, after the Palestinians, first and foremost, its own Jewish population. This was underscored once again in recent days by comments from top Israeli leaders. Avi Dikta, a member of Benjamin Netanyahu's war cabinet, announced on Israeli national television that, quote, we are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba, end quote. Meanwhile, you have Gallant, the defense minister, warned, quote, what we're doing in Gaza, we can also do in Beirut. End quote. I do not need to tell you how many times Israel has bombed Syria, a practically daily occurrence, and threatened to destroy Iran and Lebanon, and in fact has already done so in Lebanon several times. Dicta and Gallant statements are more evidence, if any was even needed, that the mass atrocities Israel is perpetrating in Gaza are not so-called collateral damage from a military campaign with legitimate military goals, but rather are the intended goal. Right now, Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City is under Israeli siege. No one can safely get in or out. Speaking from the hospital today to Al Jazeera, Dr. Munir Al-Burj said that the Israelis were playing games with people. They were sending text messages to people's phones telling them they could evacuate safely from the hospital and the surrounding area. But anyone who set foot out of the gates was immediately shot at, Dr. Al-Burj said. He pointed uh, to the case of one young man who stripped down to his underwear to show that he was no threat and tried to leave. He was immediately shot and left lying on the street to die. Even though he could see, be seen from the hospital's windows, no one could reach him. Dr. Al-Bush said that dozens of hospitals, were, dozens of bodies were lying in the streets around the hospital with no way to safely recover or bury them. The Israelis want to kill as many people as possible, he said. Without fuel or power inside the hospital, there have already been reports that patients are dying. The situation in Tel Shifa is not unique, but the norm. Medical facilities in the northern half of Gaza have been under relentless bombardment for the past 24 hours, Doctors Without Borders said on Saturday. Most hospitals have ceased functioning. Just a couple of hours ago, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society said that it is receiving hundreds of calls at its emergency number 101 from Palestinians besieged in Gaza City with helpless cries for ambulances to attend the wounded and killed and to help evacuate families who are stuck in their houses that are subject to continuous shelling, lacking safety, water, or food. The Red Crescent, the Red Crescent said that a lot of those calling report that there are huge numbers of people trapped under rubble and dozens of injured who need emergency medical care 
in places that are beyond the reach of ambulances or civil defense workers. As the Israeli ground invasion advances in the north of Gaza, the Red Crescent said, preventing ambulances from accessing, uh, preventing ambulances from access and targeting anyone who tries to move there is resulting in tens of bodies killed in the streets. Israeli propaganda has tried to give the impression that most people have left Gaza City and the north. And while thousands have, hundreds of thousands remain there. Israel wants us to believe that few people remain so that it won't be held accountable for their murder, whether by bombing, shelling, starvation, disease, or dehydration. Israel continues to lie that Hamas is using Palestinians as human shields. They're even calling patients inside hospitals human shields as if patients would be anywhere else. The reality is that Israel considers everyone in Gaza to be a target. It is even explicitly using Palestinians as human shields as can be seen in this image. Shaima Ziara, a Palestinian journalist now in Canada, recognized the picture as showing her uncle and son and his sons blindfolded and placed near Israeli military equipment. That is the reality in Gaza. Over the last 37 days, there have been frequent communications cuts with Gaza, and it is hard to reach people there at the best of times. Now, the Palestinian telecoms company is warning that by Thursday there could be a permanent hard blackout as the generators that run their equipment uh, run out of fuel, just like the hospitals. Gaza will go dark again, this time for good, and we will not be able to bear witness to any of the uh, next atrocities Israel has planned in its Gaza Nakba. The sensible thing to do, the sane thing, the humane thing to do is to demand an immediate ceasefire. That's what millions of people around the world did again this weekend as they took to the streets. In London, the rally in support of Palestine is said to have been one of the largest demonstrations ever in British history. But sadly, basic human empathy and decency continue to be lacking among our so-called leaders. Not even Bernie Sanders is calling for a ceasefire. And this is what President Biden said when he was asked about it last week. None, no possibility. That's what President Biden says when asked about a ceasefire. And on Sunday, the European Union's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, repeated the Israeli lie that Palestinians use civilians and hospitals as human shields. This is tantamount to inciting Israel to commit more crimes against humanity. Borrell and any other international officials who repeat these lies and who engage in such a incitement must be held personally, criminally liable as accomplices to Israel's atrocities. But despite this psychopathic insistence that Israel be permitted to continue slaughtering and expelling Palestinians to its heart's content, the public pressure is starting to have an effect. It is too slow 
but it is happening. Today, Israel's foreign minister, Eli Cohen, admitted that Israel is coming under growing pressure to stop the massacre. Quote, from a political point of view, we recognize that Israel has come under more pressure, Cohen said. He continued, the pressure is not very high, but it is increasing. Cohen added that, quote, in conversations I hold with foreign ministers, they emphasize the humanitarian issue in Gaza, the aspect of their identification and shock from the October 7 massacre is reduced. There are also those who request not publicly to work towards a ceasefire, end quote. In other words, even Israel's most loyal supporters are having a tough time stomaching the scenes from Gaza. As I said, this pressure is not enough, but it's all we have and we have to keep it up. After 37 days, Israel has achieved nothing militarily. All it has achieved is death and destruction. There is no uh, doubt that the reason there is any pressure at all is due to the popular outrage, anger, and revulsion at this genocide. So the message is clear. We have to keep up the protest, keep raising our voices, in every way and every place that we can. In closing, I want to say that Israel's barbaric methods are, by the admission of its own leaders, meant to imprint on the minds of Arabs that their genocidal settler colony is a permanent and irrevocable presence in their midst. But I would argue that it has only done the opposite. The resistance operation of October 7th despite Israel's propaganda and lies about it, demolished and destroyed the myth of the invincible Israeli military. And the resistance in Gaza is continuing to make the enemy pay a very high price for its crimes. But the massacre and slaughter Israel is perpetrating leave no room for doubt. Living with Israel is like living with part of your house on fire. It's impossible. The fire cannot be contained to just one room, and if you don't put it out, it will eventually consume you. The late Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palmer once famously said about South Africa, apartheid cannot be reformed, it must be abolished. The Zionist apartheid regime, the Zionist genocide regime must be abolished as well, once and for all, if the people of Palestine and all the people of the region and to have a future beyond this American-Israeli genocide. Thank you so much, Ali. Uh, we are now joined by Hind Kodari, a journalist in Gaza who's been providing round-the-clock reports and updates on the genocide. Hind wrote a moving personal dispatch for The Intercept on Sunday titled, I Joined Gaza's Trail of Tears and Displacement, and she joins us from the south of Gaza. Hind, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank it's, you. It's really good to have you here. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, and I really appreciate um, everything you, got, you guys are doing, and, and like, um, thank you for everything. Thank you, Hint. Thank you, Hint. Your your coverage has been absolutely incredible and how you keep it up under so much personal pressure and 
including the loss of so many of your journalistic colleagues, the murder of so many of your journalistic colleagues is just unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Hind, if you could first talk about um, the Trail of Tears to the South. You wrote that you walked over dead and decomposing bodies, that you saw Israeli soldiers standing on rubble, posing and taking selfies. Tell us about what you went through and and what you witnessed. And this is also not the first um, time that you've had to move somewhere in Gaza over the past month. Um, This is like the third or fourth time I have been displaced and moved from place to another. But moving from the city to the south was a a very unpredictable experience like we didn't want to move to the south we did not want to we did not really want to do that because that what we feared is really happening no one is speaking any about anything that's happening in the city and we knew that this was going to happen but at the same time we we either like save our lives and like free ourselves from being killed arrested or injured because there has been a lot of people that have been calling for people to come and like rescue them and no one is like no one is rescuing them they're not reaching anyone and we have been like receiving like dozens of appeals every single day from different people across the Gaza strip especially from the area that I was in like the past couple of weeks we 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 started packing and moving at 6 uh, A.M. on Friday. It was six six thirty when we started packing, and we did not know that this is like this has happened. Like until like the the area we we walk from to the tanks area, we were like standing looking at each other as like, are you sure we we want to go? Are you sure we want to do that? And because we were like, at least thirty people, two families with kids. Doctors from Al Shifa Hospital. One of them was my cousins and her colleagues. Other journalists. We were all like, do you know when you have a foot in, like inside and a foot outside? Is like, like it was like all of these mixed emotions. And like we started walking, and like the minute I saw this tank, like the tanks in the in inside me because. Like, what, what's going on? How did this all happen? And I started remembering, like, all the footage we see from the West Bank is like, are we gonna, like, is that, is this, is this happening right now in the Gaza Strip? And like, everyone was terrified and I never saw the amount of, of, of fear in people, like, holding their kids, being very afraid from anything, um, like anything they like anyone could do like people would like they would like lose like they would like if you're holding something and it falls people would not like come and pick it up because they're they're scared like they were like the israelis would think they could did like something like um that's like they're hiding something or something so people would like put their like heads down they would walk without looking anywhere and like the things, the details I saw, like the the flies on these bodies, like you would know that, that, like okay, there's a body here, there's a lot of flies, 
and these are decomposed bodies. Like some people were trying to use blankets and covering these bodies. And like, they were me, don't press, don't press. There's a body, killed body here. And I was like terrified. I, where, 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 but the whole area is like bodies covered with blankets. And then on the other side, I found like four or five literally having selfies, like pausing, like with their guns and like, and like, like laughing and pausing and like we're, like we were the like the background of their picture very humiliating and dehumanizing like and like I, I never thought I would ever go through this and all the time I was very terrified that they would see me see one of my 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 my, my friends my colleagues because we're all journalists they have been they 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 like they literally like um, published uh, a list of journalists they want to assassinate like and like we were terrified because we were not like we were we did not even go out with our press jackets because we left like oh my god no we won't do that and we left all of our press jackets our helmets in Gaza so now we're not even working because we don't have like the safety equipment and it was very overwhelming and like people walking elderly people patients people like patients in al shifa hospital i i i tried my best in the intercept um piece like I, it was an editor's note and i wrote it the first thing i wrote is like this t- took me like time to express and to put all, everything i documented with my eyes in like on my laptop and into words because i started like okay this happened Da, 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 da. without like I, I really wrote everything down and then went back and like rewrote everything and then because I felt like even the I saw and felt were trapped inside my heart like I was I, I was not terrified for the first time of my life seeing like tanks and soldiers but I was very like very angry that everyone else was terrified I was very angry seeing all of these children and crying like like I like one of the girls who she was like maybe a five or six year old girl she was wearing her slipper and suddenly like she lost her slipper when she was walking and she wanted to come back and wear it and her father told her no don't wear it just keep walking and like they were terrified like holding these flags like their IDs and like it was very humiliating to see my people walking with everyone like everyone was like uh, uh, read some verses of Quran and like everyone was terrified and the minute I saw this naked guy and like them calling this baby maybe he's a three-year-old or four-year-old he was he was like they called him without his father the boy was terrified we were all they would arrest the baby but but this is like a a, a mental warfare where they want like people to feel that they're they're like in danger being killed and like people are already like they escaped from bombing uh artillery uh, artillery shelling live ammunition exchange of fire like literally the last day we spent like the last couple of hours we spent in gaza were like horrific horrible like the live ammunition did not stop for like a second 
and like we, the thing is like we know that artillery shelling is like um spontaneous where you don't know where these are going and like we were we were standing like um like the clashes and we start we 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 felt a lot of ammunition like near near the door and then we want we're like okay so they see us there are snipers there's they're stationed everywhere and and we tried our best to document everything but at the same time like if they arrest us what's what's going to happen if they like bomb us what's going to happen and they already like killed at least 49 palestinian journalists and they like they targeted families of Palestinian journalists and we're terrified like now we are in the south our families are in the south but we don't want to visit our families like I visited my family for a couple of minutes last time and I don't want to stay there because I'm very afraid they would do something to our families like like we really feel this fear that they they want us they don't want like they don't want us to speak up they don't want us to report and and every time journalists like station in an area that they want to report they either like throw like fire tear gas bombs or like spurs gas or like smoke bombs or anything they 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 really want people like to feel like they're very in danger and they're in risk and they're going to lose their lives and the pressure that was put on us was more put from our families and our agencies is like you have to leave and that's why we left but us from the inside we don't want to leave and we, we, we for like two days now we're not working because we feel this guilt of leaving mm. you know no we don't Hind- know what's happening we left Hind, it's, yes, it's, it's very clear and from reading your piece which was very moving that you did not want to leave and you wanted to continue to do your work that you have been doing with such uh i want to say courage but i I, it it is courage but also simply uh it's impossible for us to put ourselves in your position and probably you would you wouldn't know beforehand how you would react to the situation you're in i i think it's something that that um that none of us can say how we would react but clearly you have been doing your work with tremendous dedication and courage and we see that from all the journalists in gaza and i just want to say on behalf of all of us and behalf of everyone who's watching this that we owe the journalists in gaza a tremendous debt because the work you're doing is no less important than the civil defense and the ambulance crews as as vital as their work is because without you we don't know what's happening in gaza uh so i just want to to to, and please share that message with your colleagues because it's so important and ali this this is i just i'm sorry for interrupting you because i don't want to lose the internet but i want to tell you and to tell the world that this is the most challenging and hard times and days we have been reporting in like imagine reporting being like your family being killed imagine reporting in an area where in, like in a couple of minutes your house is targeted our friends we, we this is the first time we don't even have time to cry because like the the amount of bombings and escalation and like and like 
killing and targets. It's like, we don't have time. We need to report. And like, oh my God, they were killed? Okay. And like, you, you start crying, but then there's like another breaking news that you have to do. And like being homeless, being displaced, not having clean water, not having clean clothes, not seeing your family, not going through. And I think that sometimes, like, there are foreign journalists that's into the area. Oh, we may have we may have lost connection with him. I, I hope we we retain we get the connection back, but. Uh, we put up earlier, and maybe we can flash it again, uh, Hind's uh, accounts on Twitter or X and uh, on Instagram. Hind has been reporting with unbelievable dedication since yeah. this began. Uh, and her, again, she, she also shared the other day that uh, uh, Israel bombed her husband's business in Gaza City uh, that in the Intercept article she writes about leaving the home that her father built uh, and when he died in 2012 he wanted his family to, to have that house and she said it was the most precious thing for them that it was the house that he built and they had to leave it behind and they don't know if it's still there, if they will ever return to it. And um, so I think what what Hind's uh, account reminds us is that journalists in Gaza are not just reporting on what's happening. They're living it. They're part of it. And they are being targeted for extermination. Uh, The the fact that uh, now 40 journalists, more than... close to 50 now have been killed or their families have been targeted and killed is not a coincidence. That's not an accident. So, um, yeah, so they, Hint's uh, husband's business was a uh, cafe by the beach, uh, which they accused of being, I guess, a terror cafe, I, I guess, somehow uh, serving uh, iced coffee by the beach is the threat to Israel's security. So, again, we're, we're indebted to Hind and to all the journalists. Yeah, we are. And um, we're going to um, keep checking with her as, as much as we can. I mean, the uh, Paltel, the telecommunication, telecommunications company um, that operates in Gaza, uh, said that they only have enough fuel to run the the, the generators and the servers uh, for another like 48 hours or something like that. Um, so we might be looking at another complete and total communications blackout later in the week. Um, but as much as we can, we're going to um, keep in touch with all of our contributors and, and colleagues and friends there. Um, this is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Asa Wynn-Stanley. Um, in a few minutes, we're going to turn to Sawar Elejla, formerly a doctor at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza. But first, uh, we're going to go to a four-minute clip of remarks that Dr. Ghassan Abusita gave yesterday during a frontline briefing webinar for the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund 
Dr. Abbasitta is a plastic surgeon and has been working at Al-Shifa other hospitals in Gaza, tending to the injured without pause, and is on the medical advisory board of the PCRF. Let's go to that clip and then bring in Siwar. The situation is beyond dire. I mean, at the moment, we are the we are in a hospital that uh, served as a as a hospital during the First World War uh, for British soldiers. And I tell you today, I felt that you know the conditions that we were working in were not that dissimilar to the conditions they were working in. I did major changes of dressing on children with nothing today, with no ketamine, with no ketamine, with no morphine, not even tramadol. And so, uh, 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 you know, it's just now we've been reduced to this kind of brutalization. Uh, um, we have a field hospital in the compound close to where the missile landed uh, when they hit the hospital. Uh, and we're just basically making do. We have no CT scans. We have no neurosurgeons. There are three of us. There's a, myself, a plastic surgeon, one orthopedic surgeon, and one uh, 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 general surgeon. And today we were lucky that there is a, a, a obstetrician and gynecologist who joined us. Is, is they're all black injuries, and some of them are kind of weird and wonderful new uh, weapons that get tested on Gaza, as, as the case is. So one of the new ones that I've seen is this new Hellfire missile that fires. So it's like the old style electric bomb that fires dark, but this fires this. And so I've, I've been seeing uh, 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 wounds that have no soot or burn on the edges, but have a serrated edge. Uh, and then the traditional blast injury, you know, the burn, the blast, the gravel in the wounds, the dirt, the dust, uh, big chunks of soft tissue, bones, mass, and then people being taken out of underneath the rubble, crust and underneath the rubble. Um, the, the, the long-term effect is, is devastating because these are, these weapons are not only do are we going to face the problems with the initial injury, we are going to face the problem with the fact that a lot of these treatments have been delayed. The whole generation permanently damaged and disabled, and I don't even speak about the um, the, the mental health aspect. These are kids who have seen their families killed in front of them. They have seen their siblings killed in front of them. Uh, uh, they have seen they've been buried under the rubble for days. Uh, you know, I did an amputation on a on a on a six-year-old yesterday. Her arm and her her leg, and then uh, you know, uh, it's just it's just going to be overwhelming. And then I discovered that uh, my colleagues were working in the other room on a kid with a shrapnel in his abdomen, and he, and we just, uh, my colleagues told me that he has no surviving family. And so now the, 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 the family in the bed next door, next to his, are looking after him. I mean, all of these, you know, there were 120 of these kids in uh, in Sifa. I have no idea what happened to them. You can hear the bombing now started again. Uh, I have no idea what happened to these kids. What is happening is on a you know on a scale the 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 you know I've not seen before not even eighty two this is worse than eighty two we always thought that eighty two was the worst war that the Israelis have ever launched but this is much worse than eighty two 
And my only worry is that, like 82, once this is finished, the coup de grace will be another Sabran Fatila match. At the same time, despite all of this bleakness, despite this imaginable pain, we are closer today than before. We just need you to go to, to keep this anger, keep this outrage, so that people, because you know that wars don't stop when the bombs end. Wars really start when the bombs end. And the war that will be waged on Earth once this war ends is going to be even more vicious and no more insidious this war. That was Dr. Ghassan Abusita speaking from Gaza yesterday in a webinar with the Palestinian Children's Relief Fund. We now turn to Sawar Elejla. Sawar is formerly a doctor at Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza and is now a Canada-based researcher. She wrote a piece for us last week titled, I Have Nothing for the Baby. And in it, she documents the absolute terror for the 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza, including the 5,500 who have November due dates as Israel's genocidal attacks continue. Sawar, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So if you can, uh, talk about the medical catastrophe as you understand it right now. Let's begin with the OBGYN sector. Uh, we know that Israel has not only targeted labor and delivery units in hospitals, but there's limited to no anesthetics left for cesarean births uh, and even before the women can figure out if they can even access a hospital. The chemical weapons Israel is carpeting Gaza with, such as white phosphorus, can lead to severe birth defects. How can you assess the medical situation in Gaza right now? I, I don't even know where to begin, but um, what are you uh, thinking about the most? Okay, first of all, the healthcare situation in Gaza before the 7th October was uh, not at its best. Some physicians were pushed to like, refer patients to Egypt, Jordan, and uh, West Bank because there is no available medications, sometimes for some diseases, and uh, sometimes they need uh, like more complex operations, which is the experience and the necessary stuff are not available in Gaza. Um, so there are... 35 hospitals in Gaza are now, 25 are out of service, mostly in the north uh, part of Gaza. Um, like uh, the only hospital are functioning now is Al Ahly Hospital, where Dr. Hassan Abseta is uh, working. And in the south, uh, the situation is not better because the main facilities and the main services provided in the hospitals are not available, as the fuel is not uh, there. And like hospitals are now turning like for just only for uh, first aid providing like doctors are uh, witnessing patients that they could be saved, but because there is no operations, no or uh, no services, no medications, especially for anesthesia and antibiotics. Like most of the wounds are complex burns, extensive burns with um, that are um, like. Um, infected with the rubble and dust on it, like most people are getting out of the rubble. Like these extensive areas need extensive washing with um, and extensive coverage with antibiotics, strong antibiotics. That seems most of the 
antimicrobes there are resistant to, which is not uh, basically not available because of uh, like the uh, the third siege on Gaza since day war uh, since uh, war day one and like the few hundred trucks that entered Gaza from Egypt are um, like resupplying nothing. And um, like most of it, as Ibrahim Matar said, Dr. Ibrahim Matar said in Shadal Hospital, he's now, um, like he said that most of it are uh, gauzes and um, COVID-19 kits with no real supply for what is missing, for what is needed in a trauma setting like Gaza. So the healthcare system is extremely overwhelmed. Ministry of Health says that what uh, they consume nowadays in one day is equal to what uh, they consumed for a month in uh, previous, uh, previously before this war. So over 38 days of war, like this huge extension, this huge consumption of resources with no resupply is catastrophic. And hospitals are now graves, like. It's not a hospital. It's not providing medical uh, services. The only available thing is healthcare staff. Who can do this? Who are also targeted? Like um, we started with my friends, my doctor friends, um, an initiative to for to track the healthcare um, uh, workers who have been killed uh, during uh, this war. Like till now, there are 226. Uh, healthcare workers have been killed, 39 physicians and 21 paramedics, 73 nurses and 28 pharmacists. Uh, my brother is a pharmacist and uh, I have another brother who is a lab technician and my father volunteered um, as a nurse. He was a nurse 20 years ago, but he quit. And then he now uh, came back to nursing just to volunteer when Ministry of Health called for um, anyone in the medical services, whether retired or um, quit, like um, they go for, they all went to the to Ashifa Hospital as uh, volunteer, like um, some uh, work there and some volunteer and some like refugee, even medical students and dental students are there. Uh, the last time I, I talked to my brother, the pharmacist, uh, he like it was like two weeks ago. Uh, he told me that there they have nothing, no medication in stock, like ketamine, the only analgesic or anesthetic um, uh, medication available, it has 20, uh, 48 uh, hours to run out, antibiotics similar, um, anything uh, are not available. And uh, like what comes like very, from uh, NGOs or some humanitarian aids can't be uh, like it's not it's not sufficient. Later, the Shifa Hospital are now um, besieged and access is really restricted. Even ambulances can't reach such areas. Uh, never uh, in the especially in the north. Like not uh, only seven out of the ten ambulances are now working uh, in the north part of the Gaza. Mostly not going to the Shifa Hospital area because it's out of service mostly heading to Al Ahli Hospital. Um, in addition to the um, shortage of water and shortage of oil, shortage of oxygen, which has been destroyed by uh, 
uh, like direct airstrikes on it. Uh, this puts uh, many patients in risk. There are now 600 patients in Atashifa Hospital, uh, 36 uh, premature babies uh, who need electricity for, for, uh, for ventilation, which is critical and like manual ventilation can't be kept uh, for so long. Thuar, <laughs> thank you for that uh, incredible overview of the, the situation. I want to ask you, you know Al-Shifa Hospital. Yes. And you worked there. Israel says that Hamas uses Al-Shifa Hospital and other hospitals as a base and that there is a uh, secret command center for Hamas underneath Al-Shifa Hospital. When you were in Al-Shifa Hospital, did you see any evidence of uh, Hamas or any other armed group using Al-Shifa Hospital as a base? Never ever. Never ever. If uh, Hamas, like Israel, always lies and says every every place in the in Gaza Strip is now a military base, schools, hospitals, houses, anything. So, so, yeah. so you did, you never saw uh, men uh, carrying rockets going down into the basement of Al Shifa Hospital. This is so ridiculous. Never. Uh, when you look at the news now. What do you think your colleagues at Al-Shifa, your former colleagues there, your family, including your members of your family who are healthcare workers, mm -hmm. what, what do you think that, what, what are they, are you in touch with them and what are they telling you about the situation that they're going through? Um, like the, my, my family left Al-Shifa hospital like three days ago. Like they headed to to the east, I think. Uh, I haven't contacted them like for a week because the network is difficult. But I knew some from the people in the south. Mm. Um, like uh, if I have been in the position of like a ship hospital surrounded by tanks and being bombed at every uh, every moment at every moment with tank shells and snipers and the drones uh, there with for uh, drones that should fire on every moving thing. Like, it's extremely, like, extremely horrifying, horrifying situation. In addition to their, um, like, the, the mental health toll of this war that's happening, like, for 38, and uh, when when they witnessed, like, uh, unimaginable situations, like, unimaginable um, injuries, a lot of people dying, and, um, like now they are witnessing people dying. Like this, like this feeling for a doctor who spent his life like studying to save people. He now has the, the knowledge to save people, but doesn't have the tools. This is like uh, the end of the world for a doctor. Like I like uh, what uh, Doctor Hamam uh, described before that um, before he was killed like two mm -hmm. days ago. Uh, he was like a brilliant, promising nephrologist who came after a long journey from Jordan um, studying nephrology. He was like, he would be like a real change to the healthcare system in Gaza Strip, like training the new doctors too. But we lost him. And that's, that's true that many of the doctors who've been killed were 
senior doctors with great experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, do, do you think that, why, why do you think Israel targets the hospitals? I mean, it, it makes no sense to, to, from any perspective, but why do you think that they target the hospitals? Like, um, there has been, like, some reports that uh, Israel targeted uh, doctors and nurses and paramedics directly since they moved out of the hospital, like, to check on their families. Like, uh, it has been five incidents reported right now. Uh, and this, they were killed in uh, their houses with their families. And the, the airstrikes on... Uh, hospitals is not like I don't think it's unique like they want the hospitals because they lie about everything like they 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 have destroyed everything in the north and uh, in the northern part of Gaza and uh, as well as in the south but they are trying now to make Gaza City and um, to make Gaza like uninhabitable like uh, depriving people from every basic like services they destroyed everything and the hospitals are the remaining maybe this came late because it has some mythical they don't have ethics to start with but maybe because of the uh community will be great will be angry and mad at them so they put it to, to the last i mean they do they they seem obsessed with targeting the hospitals um like they they they, they can't not uh, you know, they're like there's uh, Dr. Gassan was talking about how they're uh, snipers targeting patients inside the buildings. Um, how how are I mean, can, how are people able to uh, to treat you know the the wounded um, in situations like this? What supplies do they have, and what supplies are they out of? Like, they are out of, of everything. Like, the remaining supplies that were, like, uh, stored for uh, uh, emergency situations, like, um, it has for sure been consumed over the 38. And doctors right now, as the, uh, the orthopedic Dr. Fadl uh, Naim reported, that they are now, like, waiting for for patients to die, like, for the wounded to die. Because, like, technically they have nothing to provide to provide them with. So, like, they, even as care workers and doctors, don't have the time, like, to grieve or to wait. Like, uh, Dr. Brahim Matar said that they have lost of three dear friends, three dear colleagues, like, and received one of them who just went out of the hospital, like, without a head. So, after seeing your friend like this and... Your colleague, you have been working together, and you're playing for planning for your future together. Like this, like it's of course, you, any normal people will be like collapsed. And but they have, they they are now the only resource. So healthcare workers are now the only resource in the hospital, doing whatever they can, whatever they like, using the very primitive methods to save patients. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ali. I wanted to, I, I think we have a, a clip uh, of Dr. Hammam. Is, is that something you want to show? Hey, Dr. Hammam? Yes. 
Don't uh, you go with your family. Yeah. yeah. Um, why don't you go with your family south? And, and if I go, who treats my patients? We are not animals. We have the right to receive proper health care. You think I went to medical school and for my postgraduate degrees for a total of 14 years, so I think only about my life and not my patients? I'm asking you, ma'am. You think this is the reason why I went to med school? To think only about my life? This is so, not the reason. And, do- and Dr. Hammam uh, Allah was killed when he, as I understand, when he went out of the hospital to visit his family. Uh, I'm not sure about this, but he was killed in his house with his family. Yes, yes that, that's, that's what I read. So what, I'd like to ask you a question, if I may, that's slightly different. We've spoken on this uh, live stream to some of our friends from Gaza who are now outside Gaza like yourself. And that's a very, very difficult experience to be away from friends and family and also not even to know how things are going. But I wanted to ask you where you are, do you have uh, community support? Are there other people from Gaza that you, so that you can turn to each other or other people in the community who are helping you and helping each other through this horrific experience? Uh, I'm here with a family, like my uncle family, and um, uh, there are a lot of Palestinian friends. We go together to administrations every, like every day, every Sunday, like every, like in, on Monday and Fridays, there are tests in all over Canada. So we go to the nearest in Montreal and uh, watching news 24 hours, seven, contact people, like trying every minute, like to call people from Gaza. Uh, maybe the network will be will be functioning and uh, they will we will hit them a call. Uh, uh, we work like um, uh, I am in groups like I'm doing my job. I, I think I'm trying to do something for uh, people in Gaza. Like uh, in the university I, I am in, like I, I I sometimes talk about it. Though people there are supporting me, like they support. They are uh, like show solidarity uh, about what's happening in uh, what's happening in uh, Gaza, but they are like some mostly they are neutral, which like makes me mad. But it's okay, I don't care about them. I'm trying to doing some. Uh, I'm trying to do something about like to help my people, like writing uh, in many journals and in, in many medical journals that allowed for publishing like. A very a pieces about like that support genocide, like medical journals publish pieces about supporting genocide in Gaza and saying it's okay. Um, we started like track these uh, things and writing back uh, to show how like the medical community should not be supporting this and should be with the right people who whatsoever they should be stick to their main mission of saving lives. That's such an important uh, topic, and uh, maybe it's something we we have been publishing your writing at the Electronic Intifada, and maybe that's a topic you might uh, also write about. We would we would 
love for you to do that. The responsibility of um, of of the medical community outside Gaza to take a stand uh, is something that uh, that that uh, I've heard other doctors and other medical people saying that we're not seeing the kind of support from the medical community that people have received in other situations around the world. Is that your impression as well? Yes, uh, like in international uh, NGOs, including like uh, Red, Cru- Red Cross, UNRWA, and um, the UN in general, uh, like abandoned our people. Like they don't like, uh, their main mission is to protect uh, civilians in conflict areas. They abandon the Gazan people and they don't like get the calls and ignore the calls. And when they write a statement about something that's happening, they like write it in a passive voice. They don't say Israel and maybe sometimes like uh, what's happening with Dr. Maitar Reyes, achieving scholar, like achieving uh, community wrote statement that he has been died. Like even they didn't say the, he has been killed. Right, or mentioned who killed him. Um, we're going to leave it right there. Sawar and uh, Eljla, um, you are a former doctor at Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza. Um, you are now a, um, a medical researcher in Canada. Sawar, uh, we do hope that you write more for us um, at the Electronic Intifada. Please send our regards to your colleagues and your family. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the great work you're doing all the time. Thank, thank you. you, Siwa. Thank you so much. And this is the uh, this is the Electronic Intifada live stream. I am Nora Barrows Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Ethan Stanley, and John Elmer. And we're going to turn to John uh, and Ali to assess the military situation. Um, especially over the last uh, five, uh, six days since our last live stream. John, what do we know about Israel's incursions and the resistance's uh, abilities to uh, fight them back? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's always hard to come on after um, people are giving those testimonies uh, about life that's going on. I find just straight off that I I find it unspeakable that Israel's first targets of this ground operation were the hospitals. I mean, we showed uh, a map earlier where you can clearly see uh, the incursion zones um, and then the attacks on hospitals. So <clears throat> the Israeli army has attacked uh, sniper positions across from hospitals, shooting into hospitals before they lifted up one trap and walked into a tunnel. So I think that gives you an idea of what this war is about. You can see those hospitals in the north there. They're basically um, eliminated. They're wiping out the hospitals. They're moving all of the people that are taking shelter at the hospital. They're killing people inside the hospital from outside the hospital. And like those testimonies, um, from Hinden Suar said that people were being sniped as they're leaving the hospital. They created utter panic um, because people believed that 
you know, even with their experience in all of these wars, um, people believed that Shifa, the, the, the largest hospital in Gaza, um, would kind of be the last place that you could be in Gaza. Um, and Israel flipped that script and made it the opposite. It, they made it the first place targeted for eradication before they're able to even move into uh, Gaza City, they move in from the periphery and raid, which is the words that they use, that they raid inside Gaza City. So they're not actually moving and staying inside Gaza City. They're raiding Gaza City to attack hospitals as the principal objective of their ground operation, um, a ground operation that they say the Israelis say um, they've used 5,000 airstrikes just in the two weeks of the ground operation, 3,300 from airplanes, um, 900 from attack helicopters, and they're using drones. Um, people talked about drones shooting at people leaving the hospitals. So there's no access to and from the hospitals at all, and they're laying siege uh, to the primary care facilities that people have um, you know, li uh, that are living in the most desperate situations. That's what their, um, that's what their army has decided is the principal military objective in the Gaza Strip at this point. And I think, you know, we talked on this program for a while about the cowardice of Israel. And I want to say that on Friday, watching this happen on Friday and Saturday was unbelievable. I couldn't believe what we were watching. The utter cowardice of attacking hospitals in the way that they did, leaving people to die when they don't have the courage to stand and fight in any of these areas face-to-face -face with soldiers, um, but are willing to attack intensive care and cardiology units and to cut uh, you know, neonatal uh, premature babies off from their access. Like The brutality of that even after all these decades covering this conflict was shocking to me. It was shocking to my colleagues, um, talking to them on Friday about what was happening, um, the panic that ensued from a mechanized uh, infantry attack on an unguarded hospital for all this Hamas command and control garbage. The hospital was uh, you know, virtually unguarded because it's a civilian facility with uh, no military purpose um, and that was their first target but we see that they haven't been able to fight their way into Beit Hanun in the north um, they're moving down the coastline from the north and they can't enter the beach refugee camp which is the uh, buttress uh, on the outside of attacking Gaza City they tried we can read from their reports they tried for two weeks to attack from the north to get at Shifa and they weren't able to get through the shoddy camp. The Israelis on Friday, on the day that they were attacking these hospitals, released a video showing their mm -hmm. troops operating in the Shati refugee camp, which on that map is, uh, is between Al Nasser Hospital and Al Shifa Hospital. They're on the outskirts of that, which means basically they've only driven down the beach uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and they showed photos being on the outskirts of Shadi with their troops facing the sea 
because they're terrified of being attacked by Kassam frogmen who will attack them from the sea. Um, and they're moving from there into the city to attack the hospitals. The way that they moved to get at the hospitals, if you look at the south of that map, um, in the bottom area where you can see the striped lines, that's essentially the cordon zone that the Americans uh, and the UN uh, negotiated with Israel to allow people um, to, to leave through those corridors. Israel has used that corridor to move its armor down to the beachfront and attack from the south and move up and attack from south to north, which is the opposite push of their entire two-week ground campaign. And in order to do that, they had to attack Al-Quds Hospital in Talahawa, which people reported from inside the hospital were shooting children inside of the hospital. They had a sniper's nest across from the hospital. But they're not leaving their armor. They're not leaving their tanks. Um, but they're attacking from the air um, with artillery um, and from drones, attacking in the most cowardly way the most vulnerable target in the entire Gaza Strip. And when we've heard these health reports, you're talking about the most dire situation on planet Earth. There's no other hospitals that are functioning, doing surgeries uh, without any tools at all. The footage from Al-Quds Hospital on Friday showed people, surgeons doing surgery using cell phone lights. The brutality of that type of warfare when you don't have the courage to actually get out of your tanks and fight with the thousands of soldiers um, that the Palestinians have defending their territory, it just really, I, I want to just say it was shocking even to me. The red lines that Israel has crossed in this uh, month-long situation is just, it's brutal and it's unspeakable. And I can adjust and do the military analysis, but I want to just say um, that it's deeply disturbing what we're watching. Um, and the fact that this is just allowed to happen and that the Americans uh, talk about uh, their humanitarian wing of this operation while we're watching this happen at Shifa. People in Shifa are crowded inside the basement, inside the, the single uh, building that's remaining. Israel has bombed the entire campus of Shifa and taken out all of the buildings surrounding it. We used to see pictures from Shifa with hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people sleeping on the campus in the parking lot. They're not doing that anymore because Israel dropped bombs, the same bombs that uh, Dr. Gassan talked about, uh, the ninja bomb, they call it, well, the Ginsu knife bomb that drops, uh, you know, thousands of, of knives on people, maiming them and leaving them in the parking lot and then attacking the rescue workers in the parking lot of the hospital so that people can't actually leave Shifa Hospital. The, the paramedics, the surgeons, the doctors can't go out into the parking lot and get the people, the journalists, in, in one of the cases, which is part of the reason why the journalists left, um, because if you're just going to be massacred um, and they're going to shut off the lights and invade the hospital and arrest the doctors, what's what's the move for Israel here? What happens when you occupy Shifa? Are they going to go and pretend they found tunnels inside Shifa Hospital? 
Um, it's just, it's unbelievable. And I'm old enough to remember uh, when they said Shifa was a command center before there was even tunnels. And it was the most ludicrous claim in 2003 because the entire Gaza Strip is in pitch black darkness and the only place with a light on in the entire strip, and this has been the case for 20 years of wars, is Shifa Hospital. It's the only place there's television cameras. It's the last place a militant would go, let alone a famous leader of an underground movement, to go into the only lit place, in the only place where there's journalists, the only place where there's cameras in the entire Gaza Strip. So, I mean, it, it's enraging. I'm, I'm extremely angry. I know that everybody watching this is extremely angry at what they're seeing. Um, it, it, it's the brutality of this ground war that we talked about. Um, th this is what it looks like. If you're not willing to fight and you're only going to attack soft targets uh, where doctors, uh, you know, talk about how they've given 15 years of their lives uh, of training um, to go and work in these situations. And, and that's the target that Israel chooses with its vaunted army, with the 400,000 reserves that it called up, you know, the first time ever that they've had an entire division in, uh, in combat, reserve division in combat at once. They're bragging about all of these, um, these new innovations. They've got new weapons. They've got new armored vehicles that they're testing out. Um, it's a laboratory but it's a laboratory for attacking civilians. They have this drone that people were talking about outside of Shifa um, that's shooting at people. Mm. Um, those drones aren't built for shooting fighters. Yeah. A fighter I've, would turn and shoot it out of the air. Yeah. These are civilian I've seen, massacre tools. I've actually seen footage of that, uh, which was not published because uh, it, it, could have, it could have endangered uh, people because it was clear whether it could have been clear to the Israelis they might have been able to figure out where where it was filmed so there was uh, it wasn't uh, published but I've seen footage in the vicinity of a hospital in Gaza City a complex of hospitals this is not Al Shifa but another of the major hospitals of a quadcopter this is a, one of those helicopter drones firing, just firing its guns down towards people in the street randomly. And in fact, the footage showed that drone being shot down by fighters. They were able to shoot it down. So, so that, that, that shows what you're saying, John, that this is not an effective weapon against the resistance because they can pr pretty easily shoot it down. It's a weapon of terror against the civilian population to try to force people to leave to Ga leave Gaza City. That's what they were using this for, this for, as well as incendiary flares, as well as tear gas, dropping tear gas from drones. Again, all in order to terrorize the civilians into leaving. But what I, what I want to uh, ask you about, John, if we go back to the map that uh, we have, that we have uh, we Let me just jump in really quickly before we yeah. move on. The drone, Ali, they used that drone on people who were walking in the first days. We've talked about for the last five days on Electronic Intifada updates about the number of people that have fled Gaza City. But earlier in the week, people weren't leaving. 
because they were terrified, because they were attacked by these quadcopters while they were walking to the south. And they, they left body parts and people all over the road that Hind was talking about fired from those quadcopters. And only reason we saw it was because somebody rode their bike, somebody from Gaza rode their bike through the carnage and showed us this. And it wasn't a bomb scene. There wasn't a crater. It was a, this quadcopter shooting people out like, like sitting ducks and murdered them. And so for the beginning of last week, people wouldn't leave Gaza City because they were like, there's no way we're leaving. You're massacring people, which is why you started to hear this like corridor happening and why the United States started, you know, saying, no, there's going to be four hours each day. They had to really explain to people that this was happening this way. The Israelis had to bring their tanks and stand on top of their tanks to show people that those tanks weren't going to shoot people because they were shooting people. And that's why people didn't leave Gaza City, um, because and these quadcopters were massacring them. And as you said, any fighter just looks in the air and takes down the copter. It has no military purpose whatsoever. And uh, of course, and as I pointed out at the beginning in my, in my opening remarks, the interview from Dr. Munir al-Borsh in uh, that al-Shifa, and he's the director general of the uh, the health ministry in Gaza was saying this morning on Al Jazeera or, or this afternoon in Gaza uh, on Al Jazeera that the Israelis, his words, are playing games with people. They're, they're sending people at the hospital uh, text messages saying, you have to leave, you have to leave, you have to evacuate. There are safe co corridors. This is what he, he said this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, and then when they would try to step out of the gate, they would be shot. They, right away. Right and away. dropped right on the ground in front of yeah. the hospital for everyone to see. Yeah. So it is, it is a, a sort of a, a, a sadism that is very difficult to, 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 to comprehend, even from the perspective of, of their logic. But I, I want to, uh, and also I think it's worth emphasizing again here, the fact that uh, we've had last week uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, and then yesterday Josep uh, Borrell, the EU foreign policy spokesperson, repeating the Israeli line that Palestinians are using civilians and hospitals as human shields. Like, how do you use it? I mean, wh where are civilians going to be except in a hospital? I mean, th that's what it's for. It's for, but th it's important to point out that the repetition of th this lie is incitement, not just cover, not just an excuse. It is incitement to Israel to commit crimes against humanity by attacking hospitals. And all those officials, whether they're American, European, or UN officials, who repeat this Israeli propaganda about human shields should be charged under the Genocide Convention because this is, an, this is a genocide. An incitement to genocide is a crime under that convention, and we should seek to hold them accountable. Uh, the hospitals are not on the way 
to their objective. It's not like the hospital is in the way of where they're going and so they have to make some kind of military concession to what's happening in the hospital. They're literally structurally attacking the hospitals from their positions, moving into the hospitals, and then moving back to their positions. The objective is the hospital. It's not in the way of their other objective. They have gone at the most vulnerable per people in Gaza as their primary objective. Yeah. Now, that, that, I think that's very clear from everything we're seeing. But let's go back to the map, John, because I have a few questions for you about this. So this, is, this map shows the, roughly the northern half of the Gaza Strip with Gaza, Gaza City in the middle. And the shaded areas show the areas which the Israelis are in or have entered from. And as we've talked about in recent weeks, Israel has tried to enter Gaza from different directions. What we saw over the past couple of days coming out of uh, the Qassam Brigades, the military wing of Hamas, was a whole series of videos. Unfortunately, we are not going to show them because our videos get banned when we show them, thanks to the censorship uh, of social media, including the platform we're on currently. By the way, before I get to, to talking about those videos, because of the social media censorship, which includes this platform and the other platforms that we all know and love. I really want people to go to electronicintifada.net and sign up for our mailing list because that is the best way to make sure that no matter what the censorship is, we can still be in touch with you. Now, so back to this map and these videos. What the videos show in summary is uh, Palestinian resistance fighters continuing to attack and destroy Israeli armor in the most northern part of Gaza. So we're talking about the areas that would be on that map, uh, the, the sort of the top right shaded area, sort of the, the shaded area that is to the right on the screen. So we're talking about areas north of Beit Hanun and Beit uh, Lahia and they are continuing to destroy Israeli armor using primarily what we're seeing in the videos, these Yassin 105 anti-tank weapons that we're going to get to in a second, and also uh, attacking, uh, there was at least one video of them attacking Israeli soldiers, in fact, there have been several, but I'm just talking about in the last couple of days. We'd seen some previously, but I think this came out on Saturday or Sunday. There was a video of them. There were Israeli soldiers who had taken up position inside a building. Again, this is in the northeastern corner of Gaza, and they were attacked by the resistance with one of these TBG uh, rocket uh, grenades. I'm going to ask you about that too. But my bigger point here, and today they haven't, at least before, as of the time we started the live stream, I haven't checked while we've been on air, but uh, they had not released videos, but 
Qassam had this morning um, issued a whole string of statements about them continuing to attack and destroy armor and to target Israeli soldiers with snipers in different parts of Gaza. So, again, the, the point here seems to be, or at least what I'm seeing, is that even in the areas that are very close to the Israeli border, Israel has not been able to establish firm control. In other words, they have entered these areas, but the Israelis cannot let down their guard. So my question to you, how is that, that after 37, 38 days, the Israelis still cannot be secure, even in these areas that are still very close to their border? And what are these weapons that the resistance are using? I thought that Israel had the most sophisticated armor in the world. They, it, we've talked about it before. It's the thickest armor in the world because they don't have to put it on airplanes like the Americans do. And they also have something called reactive armor, which explodes when something hits it. The armor actually explodes in order to repel any munition. Is this all really happening? Is the resistance really destroying all these Israeli tanks? And by the way, as of, I think it was Saturday, Qassam said they had destroyed over 160 Israeli military vehicles in Gaza. So, John, what is going on here? What are these weapons? Is this all real? Uh, how it, it must be because Israel hasn't occupied Gaza City yet. But what's going on? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the longer Israel's in place in these spots, the more likely they are to get hit. I think that it's important to remember we're talking about a guerrilla army. They don't have tanks, airplanes uh, uh, to you know, to meet uh, a mechanized invasion of hundreds, literally hundreds of armored vehicles, the resistance, uh, the guerrilla resistance isn't um, tasked with having their own tanks and meeting that advance. The fact that the Israelis can advance um, behind hundreds of tanks isn't surprising. Um, to me, it's more uh, normal that they would then be attacked once they have fixed positions, which is what we've seen in Beit Hanun. Um, and Beit Lahia in the northeast and the northwest, their Israeli positions are constantly under attack. And the way that Israel's fought this war has been to just destroy everything in front of them and then move up, um, you know, so they weren't, they're not going to fight block by block. They're going to raise the blocks and then bulldoze um, through those spots. Um, the Qassam Brigade said that they, Abu Ubaidah said on Saturday that they've hit partially or completely destroyed 160 armored vehicles. The Israelis, um, for their part, they say that um, 10% of their stock is out of service and the other ones are in for repairs. Um, so basically you have Abu Ubaidah using a number based on the number of uh, armored vehicles the Israelis have. Basically Abu Ubaidah is talking about a number, something around 18%. And the Israelis are talking about something around 10%. So their numbers aren't that far off. The Israelis are not releasing their casualties. They haven't been forthright uh, releasing casualties. They drip them out um, sometimes two and three and four days later. They haven't given any 
uh, a, a number of wounded yet. The closest that we have to a number of Israeli wounded was the IDF uh, valorized their medevac team, their helicopter rescue team, uh, six days into the ground war. They had carried out 260 helicopter medevacs from Gaza. Um, and they say that matches with something like 45 dead soldiers at this point. Um, which, by the way, is a significant number, more than the 2014 war, um, similar to the number in the ground um, uh, in the week, the key week of fighting in the 2006 war. But Israel doesn't want to have spectacular numbers come out uh, early in this invasion. So it would be interesting to see if those numbers over these weeks rise. But what Abu Ubaidah is saying um, is that they target these vehicles and partially or completely destroy them, um, in part because of the, re, uh, the protective armor that you described. The armored vehicles have a system called the trophy system that works on radar. Uh, it detects an incoming round and then launches a counter round that's essentially like a shotgun spray um, that attacks the incoming round. And that's some of the videos that we've seen um, when you see the big, large flare of flames. That's actually the burn off of the weapon from the Israeli counter uh, measure. But the armor only has a shot, that shot, and then it doesn't work anymore. It needs to be repaired. So if those are being hit twice in a row, um, they're penetrating. The NAMR, as it's called, armored vehicle that Israel, again, all of these tools are new. The trophy system operated in 2014 during that war, but that war was very limited uh, in scope. This is the first time that the, tr that the active protective armor system that the whole world is watching as a laboratory, that's the first time that it's been used on these armored vehicles. So primarily the Israelis use four armored vehicles. They use an armored personnel carrier that you see at the top that they have about 250 of, and those hold like 12 or 13 troops. And we saw on the 31st of October an ambush by the Qassam Brigades where they fired two simultaneous anti-tank weapons. Um, the first one sets off the reactive armor and the second one hit inside the Namr and killed 11 soldiers at once. That vehicle below it, um, that's called an A-10, it's a wheeled armored vehicle that's state-of-the-art, that's the most defended piece of rolling equipment that's ever been made. That's what the Israelis say. Um, it's completely, um, it has no windows, it has no vulnerability points uh, in its armor. It works by camera that works all the way around the vehicle and you watch on television screens. And the troops are in this, inside of these vehicles um, in part because of what I said, the 8,000, the 5,000 airstrikes um, that have happened in, um, in the Gaza Strip, they are all around their troops. Israel is repeatedly, when they meet contact, when they meet resistance, um, they call in an airstrike and bomb the entire building. Um, that that's that, that that resistance comes from. So those are the two type of armored uh, vehicle carriers for troops. Then they move those vehicles um, through the bulldozer that you see at the top there. They've built Israel. Um, people may remember going back to the Second Intifada because Israel's been using these Caterpillar D9 bulldozers um, to to create war crimes, uh, to execute war crimes. Um, 
This is the buffer zone making tool. This is the tool that raised the center of the Janine camp in 2002. Um, you know, this is the bulldozer that ran over Rachel Corey in Rafa on the Philadelphia corridor when she was defending civilian homes that were being bulldozed by these bulldozers. And then at the bottom there, you see that's their vaunted Merkava tank, which is the strongest tank, most armored tank ever built. And the thing that they've done with their armored vehicles um, previously, um, so what they've done with their armored vehicles is they've used the hull from the Merkava tank, which has been the most armored vehicle um, that any army has had for a number of decades. Um, and, and what they've done is taken the hull of that tank and turned those into their armored personnel carriers. So essentially, Israel, unlike any other country in the world, has fully armored tank armor on their uh, patrol vehicles. Um, and so you see, those are, those are what Israel, those are the four main tools that we're looking at that Israel is using. And the Palestinians have countered that um, by their own indigenous weapons making uh, uh, manufacturing capacity. They have decided very sensibly to use previously existing launcher systems. People are probably familiar with the rocket propelled grenade launcher, the RPG um, that you've seen on resistance fighters for decades. These are not new weapons at all. But what the Qassam Brigades, this is a clip from their video when they released this weapon, this is called the Yassin, and it's an anti-tank uh, shell that they've built themselves um, in Gaza into, and applied it to an already existing uh, weapons system. And so what they've done is mass produced this shell, which you can see in that photo, that's got a Qassam uh, manufacturer spray painting them black. When we look at them in the videos, we can see that they're black. Um, but what you're seeing there is the Yassin, that's the weapon that we've seen be used 160 times plus whatever number was today. It looked like dozens. Um, that's the weapon that the Palestinians are using. They're using it from a rocket-propelled grenade launcher uh, apparatus that everyone in the world has. Um, but they've ingeniously created the warhead, um, which is the, the fat part you see there, um, is a second charge. So it's called a tandem charge warhead. The top piece that you see there has a charge in it. And then the second one, the larger one uh, below it, you fire that from the shoulder uh, fired rocket launcher. So anyone can just hold it on their shoulder. Any fighter can use it um, and they can mass produce these. And the first charge is designed to set off the reactive armor. Um, and then the idea is that the second charge um, can then penetrate, or if there's not reactive armor, when these were first invented, um, it was to break, the first one would break the armor and weaken it, and the second one would penetrate. And so that's what we're, Israel's talking about, that's what the Palestinians are using, they call it a Yassin, because they designed it, um, they designed it as a copy of an already existing weapon, but they make it indigenously in Gaza, uh -huh. and they named they it after it. Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, who is the founder of Hamas. Um, 
who incidentally, while we have this captive situation, was also released in a prisoner exchange like Yahya Sinwar, the leader of Hamas now, was um, in a prisoner exchange before the first intifada. So they've named this after uh, the founder of Hamas, and they've mass produced these weapons. And now we've seen them in various um, uses in those videos that it would be good if we could show those videos. They're not, um, you don't see any carnage. There's no they're, reason. They're not to, graphic. No, they're not graphic. Not, there's yeah, no it's, reason it's to block It's just outright censorship. Yeah. There's, there's, it's I outright mean, censorship. Sh- yeah, it's outright censorship. And, my, I, and I, uh, I have to be honest, I avoid to the greatest extent possible watching Western uh, media, mainstream media. So I don't know, I, but I don't think they show them very much on on Western oh, media no, either, because because the, they, the the impression they give is really quite damning in terms of the effectiveness of the resistance and the ineffectiveness of the Israeli army. Again, when I say ineffectiveness, let let me be clear: the Israeli army is absolutely the best army in the world at mass murdering children. They, and in fact, the statistics that come out, have come out in, in recent days, <clears throat> we mentioned this previously, that the number of children, excuse me, I should cover this, this uh, logo, That's not, that was not intended. But uh, the, the, uh, the uh, the number of children killed in Gaza in the last month by Israel exceeds the entire number of children killed in all armed conflicts in the world since 2019. They're just absolutely horrific uh, numbers. So Israel hands down world champions, world champions at child murder. That's not what I'm talking about when I say they're ineffective. What, what I say is that, that they have not been able to establish military control over even the edges of the Gaza Strip, where we're seeing these videos that are undeniable. They're undeniable when you look at the videos that the Israeli army cannot sit securely in any part of Gaza without being subject to these devastating attacks by the Yassin anti-tank grenades that you just mentioned but also john tell us about these tbg grenades because they look the same from the outside as far as i can tell but they are different and they're used for different purpose and again the reason we're going into this in detail is because i think it's important that people understand because on paper you would think well the israeli army it's overwhelming it's so superior Resistance has no chance. And I think the reason we need to get down into the weeds a little bit is so that people understand that it's not quite as simple as that. So tell us about these, this, this TBG grenade and what that is, John. So they basically used the same model that they created these shells, and they have multi-purpose to the shells. We've seen the Yassin shell be dropped from... Um, from a quadcopter, we've uh, on top of a tank so that it hits the the, the top um, turret, 
and they also and they hand deliver them. I've, we've seen videos with Palestinian fighters literally holding the Yassin warhead and placing it into the weak spot on the Merkava above the um, uh, above the protective armor, which we we talked about last show. Um, so the They've also made in that same warhead, they made uh, a thermobaric grenade, which is uh, a fuel bomb, which is an intense, um, an intense fuel bomb that we saw them use against an Israeli troop position on Saturday in Beit Hanun, which surely, um, surely killed both those soldiers. But again, when you look at the IDF reporting, they never reported uh, two soldiers killed in a Beit Hanun house. So it's not clear exactly what's going on. We're definitely seeing uh, many armored vehicles being hit because the active protection system also, um, if you're close to it, it doesn't work as well. And we've seen some really point blank, including literally putting it with your hand. We've seen some point blank um, attacks that look like the uh, reactive armor wouldn't have an opportunity from that from that closeness. Um, to hit. And so essentially the Israelis are afraid to come out of their vehicles um, because of these indigenously produced weapons that we don't, we don't know about these. I've studied this for my whole life. We knew that the Yassin, which started as a, a normal uh, rocket propelled grenade and ha- in 2003, and it has been built over the years to improve it, um, based on the improvements of Israeli armor. So when they invented the, arm, the Namer armored vehicle that had a thicker um, skin on it of armored skin, the previous rocket-propelled grenades um, weren't effective against it. So they, the Palestinians have adapted in their own indigenous weapons industry to make a, sh- a shell um, that, that upgrades based on the upgrades to Israeli armor. And they appear to be working very effectively. They can be mass produced and given to all their fighters. We don't know. They only first announced the existence of this weapon. Uh, we saw it in a parade um, before, but the actual announcement of this weapon was at the beginning of this war. And they showed us the underground uh, manufacturing facility um, where it's made, and they've shown us the capacity to use that same shell size and manufacturing guideline to also create secondary weapons like a thermobaric grenade, which is um, a, a more of an anti-personnel type weapon that will be used. Welcome back. And uh, that was an analysis of the resistance to uh, the Israeli occupation forces uh, inside of uh, Gaza. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, November the 19th. And, uh, of course, um, we are here uh, broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, all you need to do is go uh, to uh, our website, And that's at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. You can reach the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the music of uh, the legendary Horace Silver. 
This is taken from an album uh, from 1968 entitled Serenade to a Soul Sister. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.